This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. This week we have Hitler's Crimean War, the November 2nd, 1941 episode of Behind the Headlines. This was an NBC radio series that strove to take a deeper dive into the news stories of the day by sharing history and perspective that was shaping the current events. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donations help us to continue to produce the podcast, and thanks to those of you who have already donated. So thanks for listening, enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The story behind the headlines. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with the American Historical Association, again presents Caesar Searchinger, noted foreign correspondent and writer, in an informal analysis of the news. With the assistance of a research panel of eminent historians, Mr. Searchinger retraces the events of the past to help you in arriving at a fuller understanding of what is happening today. Mr. Searchinger's subject tonight is Hitler's Crimean War. Mr. Searchinger. Good evening. On Tuesday of this week, the Nazis announced that they had broken through the Isthmus of Perikop after a fierce battle lasting ten days. The Perikop Isthmus is that mere thread of land, three to four miles wide, which connects the Crimean Peninsula with the mainland of Russia, or to be exact, the Ukraine. Today, the Nazi High Command claims the capture of Simferopol, the capital of the Crimea, a city of well over 100,000 souls. Simferopol is about 75 miles south of the Isthmus, and the speed of the German advance was favored by the flat steppe, which is almost ideal tank country. Tonight, the Nazis claim to be within 40 miles of Sevastopol, the Russian naval base near the southern tip of the peninsula, while another column is advancing eastward from Perikop towards Kerch, where the famous iron mines and metallurgical plants are situated. How soon either of these objectives will be captured depends, of course, on the kind of defense the Russians are able to put up. In the case of Sevastopol, the going is likely to be tough, for not only is it heavily fortified, but it is ringed about by mountain ranges and the sea. Its very large harbor holds a formidable fleet, which may take part in the final stages of the defense. That this defense will be bitter goes without saying, for the value of the Crimea is far out of proportion with its size. It isn't a large place, of course, with an area slightly more than the state of Maryland. Its one and a quarter million people have a racial mixture all their own, 
Crimean Tatars, Ukrainians, Armenians, Greeks, Jews, and of course Russians. The Tatars are the main native stock, descendants of the Tatar hordes who established a Khanate in the Crimea in the 13th century, raided medieval Russia for centuries, and sacked Moscow in 1571. Today, what Mongol blood there is, is very much subdued, and the Crimeans are supposed to be loyal comrades of the Soviet. The importance of the Crimea is, first of all, economic. For the most part, it consists of fertile prairie land, a steppe, which grows excellent wheat. In fact, it was famous for its wheat even in ancient times. For almost five centuries before Christ, the Athenians got a large part of their grains and other commodities from the peninsula. It was then known as the Kingdom of Bosporus, which later became a tributary to Rome. The fame of the fertile peninsula survived all the vicissitudes of Rome. It attracted the Goths, the Huns, the Khazars, the Byzantine Greeks, the Kipchaks, and the Mongols, who all conquered it in turn. And in the Renaissance, first the Venetians established coast settlements, then the Genoese built up trading towns which flourished down to the conquest of the southern Crimea by the Ottoman Turks in 1475. A century before that, by the way, the Tatars I mentioned uh, had been firmly settled on the steppes further north, and eventually their leaders became tributary princes of the Turks. Meantime, of course, Russia had been growing more and more powerful, and the Tsars weren't forever going to tolerate the Turks exploiting this rich morsel of land on their southern sea coast. After several wars with the Turks, and after defeating the Tatars in 1777, the Russians one fine day annexed the whole peninsula. That was under Catherine the Great, who was anxious to secure a warm water outlet for her empire via the Black Sea. Ever since then, the Crimea, because of its favorable climatic conditions, has been not only an early ripening granary, but more recently a source of tobacco, cotton, all kinds of fruit, wine, oils for perfumes, etc. And because of its wonderful Riviera, that southeastern coast sheltered by a steep mountain range, it also became the favorite playground of Russian princes and the pre-revolutionary Beaumont. Along this sun-kissed shore, the white palaces of former Tsars are mirrored in the azure sea and quaint Tatar villages nestle against steep slopes, gay with mimosa, magnolias, tulip trees, and sweet-scented flowers. Today, the place is studded with sanatoria and rest homes for workers from all parts of the Soviet Union. Nearly half the health resorts of the country are concentrated on this favored strip of land. Now, much as the Nazi leaders may long to enjoy this little paradise, that is obviously not their main purpose. They say they are capturing the peninsula in order to make a shortcut to the Caucasus and its oil. If that is really their purpose, they will have to drive almost 200 miles to the eastern end of the peninsula and cross the Straits of Yenikale, or Kerch, known in ancient times as the Cimmerian Bosporus. At one point, these straits are only two and a half miles wide, and the water is shallow. Crossing those shallow waters may be an easy job for amphibious Nazi warriors, and anyhow, the Sea of Azov is likely to freeze pretty soon. <coughs> if the Nazis did succeed, they would be within 150 miles of the famous petroleum area of Krasnodar, Maikop, and Neftogorsk. This region in 1938 produced and refined about 7% of Soviet Russia's oil. Last year, the total volume of Russian oil output was nearly 35 million tons. Hence, the Krasnodar area would produce at least five million tons. 
Oil wells can, of course, be destroyed or made unproductive for some time, and the Russians would no doubt do just that. To get at the bulk of Russia's oil in Baku, the Nazis would have to drive across the Caucasian Isthmus to the south side of the Caucasus Mountains for another six or seven hundred miles. It seems clear that this Crimean shortcut to the Caucasus would not necessarily be a shortcut to the oil. But there is the third and perhaps most important objective in taking the Crimea, and that is the naval fortress of Sevastopol. Sevastopol is Russia's main and virtually sole remaining naval base on the Black Sea. If the Nazis captured the base, the Russian fleet would have to retreat to the eastern Black Sea and find shelter in the harbors and oil ports of the Caucasian shore. What are the chances of the Germans taking Sevastopol? There is, of course, a classic precedent for the capture of this historic fortress, though under very different conditions, and that was the Crimean War of 1854. In this war, the British and French, later joined by the Italians, as defenders and allies of the Turks, fought the Russians under reactionary, under the reactionary and despotic Tsar Nicholas I. That war was a curious mixture of glory and futility, bravery and ignorance, perseverance and stupidity, but chiefly misery, disease and suffering. Its purpose was to prevent the Russians from getting dominance over the Turkish possessions in the Balkans and control of the Turkish Straits. Aside from the fact that the Russians had the third largest fleet, but a pretty bad third, and that this fleet might have made trouble in the Mediterranean, the British had little legitimate concern in the war. But it was the great day of Victorian jingoism and bombast, and Russia, the bear that walks on two legs, had to be taught a lesson. Well, he was, and so was everybody else, including the British themselves. For one thing, they learned to their surprise that the depth of the sea on either side of the Isthmus of Perikop was only two or three feet. Hence the first British attempt to cut off the peninsula from the mainland by sea, as Hitler has now done by land, was impossible. So the Allied fleet landed further south at Eupatoria, being ceremoniously received by the governor who had no proper means of defense. Now, Eupatoria is less than 50 miles north of Sevastopol, and Hitler's forces from now on may be following in the footsteps of the British, more or less. However, as the British generals, according to a British military historian, were mostly duffers, the Nazis probably won't make the same mistakes. According to the French general, the French general in that war, Count Robert, they went forward as though they were in Hyde Park. Incidentally, there was no cooperation between the Allies, who fought two actions side by side. Nevertheless, they won the Battle of Alma, after which that handsome bridge in Paris is named, and marched southward around the fortress instead of attacking it from the north, the reason for the mistake being that they had no maps. They then sat down to besiege it, and sat there for eleven solid months with a British right wing at Balaclava. At the beginning of the siege occurred one of the most heroic and most absurd incidents in British history, immortalized by Tennyson in the charge of the Light Brigade. Half a league, half a league, half a league onward, all in the valley of death rode the 600. The grim truth of the matter is that the famous charge was a mistake. Lord Raglan had sent orders by his aide-de-camp, Nolan, to the Light Brigade to retake some Turkish guns. But Nolan was a cavalry fanatic and launched the attack in a different direction, right into the Russian artillery, the Valley of Death. 
and the horror and suffering of the winter that followed, chiefly because of ignorance of conditions, had only one relieving feature, the appearance of Florence Nightingale, the angel with the lamp, who created a new era in the care of the sick and wounded in war. In the end, the taking of Sevastopol settled nothing, although the Russians did sink their own fleet in the harbor, and Tsar Nicholas was so disgusted that he fell ill, refused to take ordinary curative measures, and died. The Allied generals were no less disgusted with the conduct of the war. They fell out over the proposal to take Kerch, the eastern Crimean base that Hitler's men are making for now. Finally, Kerch was taken, but Lord Raglan, the British commander, disappointed, also fell ill and died. In the peace treaty of Paris, the Russians had to agree not to keep a fleet in the Black Sea. However, this agreement went the way of all unilateral disarmaments. In 1870, when the powers were preoccupied with the Franco-Prussian War, Russia calmly renounced this clause of the treaty and built a new navy. They've had one in the Black Sea ever since. And ever since then, the Russians have continued with the Crimea as their base to control the Black Sea and to get possession of Constantinople and the Turkish Straits. That is, until the First World War. In 1878, they defeated the Turks and would have accomplished their aims except for another intervention of the powers. But that wasn't the end. Russia's rivalry with Austria and Germany for the control of the Balkans and the Black Sea was certainly one of the causes of the First World War. And after the war, the Russians would surely have had Constantinople and the Dardanelles. It was to have been their part of the spoils except for the Russian Revolution, which caused the Russians to renounce all imperialist dreams in Russia, in Europe. Today, the old question is once again a factor in the game. For Soviet Russia had resumed the old westward march along the Black Sea by taking Bessarabia from the Romanians last fall, and they were demanding at least joint control of the Dardanelles from Turkey soon after the signing of the Nazi-Soviet Pact. But it's not yet clear whether they were demanding it as a measure of security against the Allies or against their own quasi-ally, Nazi Germany, who was soon to be their enemy. In any case, the Turks refused, and Hitler took his cue. For last spring, after the conquest of Greece, he secured the islands off the Dardanelles, thus cutting the Russians off from any possible aid by sea. One thing is certain. If the British fleet could pass the Straits today, as it did in 1854, and appear off the Crimea, not as a foe of Russia, but as a friend, the Caucasian oil fields and the whole Middle East would be safer than they are today. If Hitler succeeds in taking Sevastopol, he will be in command of a large part of the Black Sea, despite the fact that he has no Black Sea fleet of his own. Even with a small craft which he is assembling or borrowing in Romanian and Bulgarian ports, he could police the western half of the sea and escort his transports from Constanza and Odessa to Taganrog and beyond to reinforce his armies now invading the Caucasus region. And this would certainly facilitate the latest grand encircling maneuver his generals seem to be planning, flanking the Russian southern armies both from the north and the south. It would also help him in placing a strong force between the Russians in the Caucasus and the British and Iran. And it might also be the prelude to still vaster projects affecting the entire Middle East, involving not only the present belligerents, but Turkey, the keeper of the Straits. Whichever way you look at it, the loss of the Crimea would be a tremendous setback for Soviet Russia and for the cause of the Allies in this war. It's well to remember, however, that in 1854, Sevastopol held out 11 months, that Odessa in this war held out for nearly three, 
and that Leningrad, with its naval base of Kronstadt, is still in Russian hands. Good night. You have been listening to Caesar Searchinger, presented by the National Broadcasting Company in cooperation with the American Historical Association. Next Sunday evening, Caesar Searchinger will be back with another story behind the headlines.